Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. I uh, recently read this article about a new church that meets on Sunday mornings at 11.30. By 11.25, people begin to gather and meet and hug each other. And uh, only instead of sitting in chairs or a pew, they sit on the floor. And once they sit on the floor, the goal is to set an intention, to, to connect to something higher than themselves. And they can devote the time to someone they love or someone who needs strength or, or someone who needs healing or just, just their sense of God or a feeling uh, like peace. And then the music begins, but, but it's the music of, of breathing. Uh, the point is to breathe for something beyond you. It's often called uh, the victorious breath. And you breathe in and out through your, through your nose, constricting the throat slightly as you exhale to create a, a kind of a rasping oceanic sound. And the goal is to uh, synchronize breath with movement as you build body heat. And when everyone is breathing this way together, the room kind of reverberates with that deep, cosmic, oceanic sound. And then comes the message as the teacher guides the breathing uh, and the posture of the students. A steady stream of messages are offered like, um, share your energy. Um, Your way of being is a choice. And... uh, then there is singing, only it's not really singing as we know it, so much as, as chanting. Every, every practice begins and ends with three chants of the word om, uh, a, a, a vibration treated as what they call the primordial seed of the universe. And then comes meditation, not guided prayer, but a guided meditation for 15 minutes following this hour-long practice. And the goal of this meditation is to find stillness within yourself. Is, is this starting to sound familiar to anyone? Um, the title of this article describing all this was called uh, Welcome to Yoga Church. It actually wasn't trying to be a church. It's just what the author um, called it church because that's what it felt like to her. And uh, it should have because whether she knew it or not, it was very much a religious gathering. Uh, She had just gone through a practice of Hinduism. Is this some sort of anti-yoga diatribe today? No, not really. Stay with me. Um, Today we're going to begin this series that look at difference between Christianity, and we'll start with Eastern religions, meaning religions that oriented in the East, yes, the questions are going to get harder, so stay with me. Uh, India, China, Japan, Southeast Asia, Sikhism, Shinto, 
Taoism, Confucianism, and uh, but maybe the most influential in the West are, are, without a doubt, Buddhism and Hinduism. You know, the proportion of Canada's population who reported being Muslim, Hindu, uh, Sikh has more than doubled in the last 20 years, from 2001 to 2021. Buddhism is increasingly influential in the West, partly uh, because of the celebrities who embrace it as their own. Jennifer Aniston, Orlando Bloom, Kate Bosworth, David Bowie, Jeff Bridges, Penelope Cruz, Richard Gere, Goldie Hawn, Kate Hudson, Angelina Jolie, Jennifer Lopez, Jenny from the Block, Brad Pitt, Keanu, uh, Steven Seagal, Sting, Uma Thurman, Tiger Woods, Robert Downey Jr., Iron Man, Benedict Cumberbatch, Doctor Strange, Chris Evans, is the whole MCU? Uh, George Lucas, Joe Rogan, Lady Gaga. I like saying it that way. The Beastie Boys. Now, Hinduism is influential in a, in a different way. I, I bet nobody could name a celebrity Hollywood Hindu. Uh, but when it comes to Hindu ideas, that's another story. Those are very famous. Um, from the Star Wars films to the writings of Eckhart Tolle and Deepak Chopra, Marianne Williamson's Course in Miracles, Yoga Pants. Hinduism is one of the most, you could say, influential philosophies in our culture. So if we could just take a look at both, beginning with the older of the two, Hinduism. Um, Hinduism has no clearly defined founder, no prophet, no historical events sort of marking its beginning, no institutional structure, no real creed. And while the philosophy of Hinduism is, is influential, only 13% of the world's population are, are practicing Hindus. Um, most of those live in India. In fact, that's what the word Hindu means. It's the Persian word for Indian. So, so it's not surprising that the nation of India has produced who is probably the most famous Hindu who's ever lived. Anyone? Gandhi. Gandhi. Uh, Hindus uh, have spiritual teachers known as gurus, uh, many uh, wandering holy men known as swamis. Uh, they have sacred writings such as uh, uh, Vedas and the Bhagavad Gita, but they are best known and most influential for these three big ideas. And when you hear them, you'll say, hmm, I actually know that idea. Um, you just may not have known that it was Hindu. And the first idea, let me just call it the force. <laughs> and that is Hinduism. Uh, for the Hindu, there's no such thing as sort of a, a one all-powerful God who created us. Instead, ultimate reality is Brahman, uh, an impersonal oneness that is something like an impersonal force of existence. The force can manifest itself in the form of many gods. Actually, um, one estimate is that there are 330 million different Hindu small g gods. The main three are Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, and 
Siva the destroyer. And that's actually what that mantra Om is about. It, it's actually spelled A-U-M. And those three letters symbolically represent those three gods, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. So saying the word Om is essentially calling up their essence and worshiping them. But behind all of those gods is one big force or reality, which is Brahman. Not to make Star Wars the primer on Hinduism, but for most of us, I think that's the easiest way to kind of connect the dots. If you think of Brahman as the force and the Jedi as the, as the gods, James Cameron actually said that Avatar was based on the idea of one of the Hindu gods taking the form of a human. It draws other aspects from Hindu philosophy as well. It's the antithesis of a personal faith. Um, it's a force, which means that our true selves, or what they call our Atman, Atman, is at one with Brahman. Our essence is the same to that of Brahman. So we're thinking of, think of it this way. All is one and one is all. Or as I think the movie said, you know, the force is all and all is the force. Or maybe as, you know, new age thinkers put it, God is all and all is God. Our problem, they say, is that we just aren't aware of our divine nature. We aren't aware that we are part of and one with the Brahman, the force. And as a result, we are bound to this life. By the way, am I asking you to throw at your Star Wars Blu-ray? Uh, no, I'm not. In fact, if you have those 1970s action figures, uh, don't throw them out. Just give them to me, because um, I would love those. You, but you need to be aware of the parallels. Uh, don't, don't mix it with the gospel. Um, so being bound to this life is, is the law of karma. Um, the second big idea within Hinduism. Karma is the sum total of your life actions, good or bad. If you don't liberate yourself from this life and embrace your divinity, you are bound to this life and to the next life and the next life and the life after that. And, and Hindus do not believe that life is you know, linear going from beginning to end. Instead, they believe that it is a, a never-ending circle of life and death and rebirth. I'm sorry, you know, to say that it's a Hindu idea from the Lion King, circle of life. Am I gonna ruin everyone's childhood movies? Yes, okay. That brings up the third big idea of Hinduism, is the idea of reincarnation. And according to Hindu thought, right now, we are all, all of us, are reaping the consequences of what we did in a earlier life. Um, if you had good karma in a past life, you're living a good life now. If not, uh, your life won't be so good. And your karma will even determine what you will be in the next life. You can come back as a human, an animal, an insect, it's one reason why all forms of life are held equal and sacred to Hindu, especially the cow, which is a symbol of Mother Earth. The solution the Hindu has to all of this is to be liberated from the, the wheel of life, 
death and rebirth by, by realizing that you, your self, is an illusion. This, this may be starting to sound familiar to those who watch the Matrix movies, too. You know, they, too, were based on a Hindu philosophy. You may recall the scene from the first film where Neo goes to the oracle and talks to the boy with the spoon who's able to bend the spoon. And when Neo asked how the boy did it, he said that the secret is to remember there is no spoon. Everything is an illusion. Everything is the matrix. Only the impersonal energy force of the Brahman is real. So you should strive to detach yourself from this life and attain enlightenment. Again, like Neo freeing himself from the matrix. And you can try to do that through uh, various forms of yoga, through ritual, through knowledge, meditation, through devotion. In fact, that's what the word yoga means. It means union with or yoking with something. And for the Hindu, that means union with Brahman. The goal is to lose yourself, lose your identity in the universal identity that is Brahman. So that's Hinduism. Now, from Hinduism came Buddhism. Buddhism also believes in one large um, divine essence that we are to tap into through our quest for enlightenment. It also believes in reincarnation. It also believes in karma. But Buddhism has a little more theology to it. Uh, Siddhar de Gautama, Siddhar de Gautama, now known as the Buddha, uh, began his spiritual search in order to find the cause of suffering and how to best eliminate it. Uh, and so in order to gain enlightenment on this issue and, uh, and from the suffering that has plagued humanity, he first tried a sort of um, hedonistic pleasure quest. He tried everything the world had to offer that was pleasurable. And that didn't work. And so then he devoted himself to extreme uh, asceticism, uh, you know, deprived himself of all the food, pleasure, comfort, hoping that that would somehow break the barrier uh, to a spiritual enlightenment. That didn't work either. It was only when, uh, it's, uh, you know, the legend goes that he sat under a tree in deep meditation that enlightenment finally came to him. And that is the meaning of the word Buddha. It means the enlightened one. And the enlightenment known as uh, the middle way, because it involved neither giving into pleasure nor giving into asceticism. It, it, and it's marked by these four noble truths from the heart of the Buddhist philosophy. Number one, uh, that life is pain and suffering. Uh, second, that suffering is caused by the desire or thirst for pleasure or for existence. Third, the way to liberate yourself from suffering is by eliminating all desire. You know, we have to stop 
wanting stuff, stop craving uh, those things that our illusion of self tells us that we should want. In other words, the idea that, that everything is impermanent. There is no you. There is no me. There is no universe. It's all an illusion. And then the fourth noble truth is that our desire can be eliminated by following the eightfold path. And we'll throw that up on the screen as well. The eightfold path is right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right awareness, right meditation. You can see there's some, you know, there's some admirable things in this. Uh, and, the, and the life on the way to enlightenment is the life that devotes itself to those eight actions. What is the ultimate goal of all this? The state of nirvana. And nirvana is to be, uh, means us are, are essentially are liberated from this endless cycle of death and rebirth by eliminating all desire, all attachment, all illusion to self. That's enlightenment. And when you're fully enlightened, you enter nirvana. And, and that comes by following the Eightfold Path. Now, after the Buddha's death, uh, the, the Buddhist religion didn't hang together very well. And today there are just so many offshoots, branches of Buddhism. For example, there are the uh, Theravada Buddhism found in such countries as Cambodia and Laos and Sri Lanka and Thailand. You know, I think you've been to Cambodia, Chris? Yeah, and me too. And it's, you know, it's heartbreaking to see often poor people who have their idols and they're giving what seems to be their food ration for the day to this inanimate object. Um, there's the Vajrayana Buddhism, and that exists primarily in Mongolia and Tibet and uses techniques from the world of the occult, actually, to try and develop spiritual power. Um, this may be most familiar to you because of their plight under uh, Chinese rule, but also because the leader in exile, the Dalai Lama, has become something of a <clears throat> pop culture celebrity. But to a Tibetan Buddhist, he's a lot more than a celebrity. He is bodhisattva, uh, someone who has attained enlightenment, but out of compassion for others, um, he has not entered nirvana. He's chosen not to enter nirvana in order to come back and guide others along the path. And uh, uh, he's worshiped as a god. Um, this is what Tibetan Buddhists believe the Dalai Lama to be, the, the 14th reincarnation of an enlightened Buddha. And <clears throat> then there is uh, Mahayana Buddhism, that is the primary form of Buddhism in places like China, Hong Kong, Japan, Vietnam, Taiwan. You have branches, you know, animists, Zen Buddhism, Wikipedia sometimes, it's, it's list after list. So it's hard to nail Buddhism down. One famous uh, Buddhist, Han San, said, you know that I don't exist. I change all the time. Every moment I am different. I exist in the way a cloud exists. A cloud is a, is a Buddhist too. You call me Hansan and pretend that I was yesterday what I shall be today, but in reality, 
There is no Hansan. It's clear, as, clear as mud for you? Okay, good. So, what attracts those of us in the West to the ideas and practices of the East? Why, why are we so taken, maybe, with the monks and the monasteries and the temples and shrines and karma and reincarnation and Star Wars and Matrix and yoga and meditation? What is the allure of all this for us? You may have your own theories. I think, um, first of all, there is a basic foundational desire we all have for a, a spiritual life. And without a doubt, Eastern religions provide that, that feeling of spirituality. You know, the Tibetan mountaintop, the monasteries, the shaved heads, the, the flowing orange robes, the exotic locations, the meditation, it all seems to hold the promise of an experience in the spiritual. And that's often all it is, the, the outward appearance, the vibe of spirituality, not, not something spiritual itself, though. I think a second appeal of this, honestly, is that it, it's a spirituality empty of any real accountability. Like, you don't have to join anything. You don't really have to believe anything with Buddhism, it's just the, you know, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, which are kind of generic, kind of ephemeral. With Hinduism, you know, it's buying into this sort of vague philosophy of a cosmic life, uh, this force as a never-ending circle, the need to try and do better in this life, you know, the, the one that you're, that you just came out of this previous life. And that appeals to people who want to be, I think, spiritual-ish, um, but maybe not truly spiritual. Around here, you know, we talk about Christianity being a relationship, not a religion, meaning it's not about a set of do's and don'ts, or empty rituals as much as it's about entering into this life-changing relationship with the living God through Jesus. There is a real God who can be encountered, who you can relate to, and he has spoken. He has given truth about himself and truth for our lives. But what some people want, I think, is spirituality without God. They want the kingdom without a king, um, without the authority, without the accountability, a spirituality that's more a set of feelings. It ends up honestly being little more than the sound of your own voice in an echo chamber. So the question we've all been waiting for, what is the difference? There's some real tension points with, with Christianity. The Dalai Lama himself has said, stated this publicly, that you cannot reconcile Buddhism and Christianity. The central doctrines of Buddhism and Christianity are not compatible. He has said that you cannot be a Christian Buddhist or a Buddhist Christian. And he's right. 
And so let me just give you three key differences between Eastern religions and the Christian faith. Christianity believes in a personal God. This is so important. Buddhism does not even believe in a higher being. Hindus believe in maybe 400 million gods that together kind of make up an impersonal force. So in essence, both Buddhism and Hinduism are are atheistic religions. So that's kind of a big divide. Is there a God or not? The idea of a personal God is at the heart of the Christian faith. Like a, a God who loves you, who cares about you, who pursues you. We sang about it this morning. This reckless love of God who pursues us, wants a personal relationship with us. A God who knows your name, who counts the hairs on your head. And this is like a, an ongoing, changing number, yes. Which, this raises the second huge difference between Christianity and the religions of the East. What is our greatest problem? To the Hindu, the biggest problem is our bad karma um, from a previous life. So work hard in this one and maybe you can break free and become part of this divine energy of the universe. To the Buddhist, the biggest problem is that you actually believe you are a life. So the goal is to get enlightened and realize you aren't even really here, man. Um, Christianity says that our deepest problem is that we are estranged from the God who created us and loves us. And the heart of Jesus' message to the world is that we are not right with God, but we can be. And this is why, you know, Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Right? Righteousness simply means rightness, a rightness with God. It's the desire to see God's standards, God's values established in every area of your life as a result of a relationship with him. So the heart of the human problem is that word, sin. It's a word we hate to hear. It's the, it's the thing we try to deny, the one thing we do not want to face or admit. Folks, if we fail to see what the nature of our problems are, uh, what the essence of our struggles in humanity are, we will never be able to address them. We'll just live a life in denial. We need a personal God and there is one. And we need to see that we are not right with God, but we can be. So it brings us to this third major divide. How do we deal with this, this disconnect, this brokenness? Christianity believes that, that the sin and the failure in our life can be met with grace and forgiveness and eternity with God. Um, it's not something that we have to earn, but something that is given to us freely out of the love of God if we would just come to him for this relationship. So 
It's not, not so for those who buy into karma and reincarnation. It's just a brutal, vicious cycle where all you get is what you deserve and what you've earned. The good, the bad, and the ugly. There's no grace, there's no forgiveness, no mercy. Most in this room would be really familiar with the most, I think, the most famous story Jesus ever told, the story of the prodigal son. I don't have time to read it to you this morning. Uh, please, if you've never read that story, it's in, uh, it's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. It's where a rebellious son just hurts his father, spends all his inheritance, realizes the emptiness of the world, and comes home to his father's disgust? No, his open arms. And a celebration is thrown for this son. And Jesus told that story to illustrate the heart of God towards us, his children. It's a story of grace. It's not a story of karma. Now, there's another ancient story based on karma, according to an Asian legend. And it tells a very similar story of another man with a wayward son. And this boy gets involved with the wrong crowd. And they persuade him in their plan to rob his own father. And when the robbery was over, his friends actually fled with the stolen treasure and left the son to face the guilt of this crime alone. And so he, he's deserted by his friends. He's betrayed his father. He goes home and begs for forgiveness. And the father calls all of the members of the family together to celebrate the return of this son. And with everyone enjoying the party, the father stood up and he lifted his cup of rice wine for a toast. And the son lifted his cup of rice wine and he drank it. And then he grabbed his throat across the table, foaming at the mouth. The father had poisoned his son's cup. And the whole banquet was there to bear witness to his revenge on his son. And that is the difference between karma and grace. Only Christianity contends that God's love is unconditional, that you don't have to earn God's approval. So, what's some of the practices of the East that we may have kind of sort of adopted? Let's just talk about yoga. It is something that, um, is it something that always needs to be rejected by Christians? You know, millions of people innocently enter into uh, yoga as a, as a way to pursue physical health. The stretching, the breathing, they find it all very positive. They don't think of it as a Hindu practice, but as a yoga class, with, with yoga not meaning anything more than a particular brand of workout, like, like jazzercise. And one of the reasons that we're so low-key about its Hindu origins is because of one of the big differences between the East and the West in terms of culture. In the, in the West, we are more a word people, okay? We're a doctrine people. We're a statement people. Faith is really tied to what we believe. Not so much in the, in the East. They are a practice 
people and experience people. Often we reason our way into spirituality. They tend to act their way into spirituality. So when you take a yoga class, you know, you'll notice they don't begin in a Western way by saying, by the way, you're getting ready to enter into a Hindu act and here are all the Hindu philosophies and beliefs that are behind it. If they did, it would freak you out. But sometimes we walk in with our eyes wide shut. In fact, if, if you go to India, and some of you have been there, and you talk to Hindus, there it is seen, yoga is seen as a primary evangelistic tool of Hinduism to the West. They are very upfront about it, and they love that yoga is sort of taking over the West. Um, just they, they are introducing people to its ideas, their beliefs, uh, their worldviews without people knowing that they're being evangelized. So even some of the, the movements used in yoga are, are deeply symbolic gestures of Hinduism. So is it okay for a Christian to do yoga? Well, if you're asking me, let me just say this. It, if you take a yoga class that is tied to Hindu roots with Hindu philosophy, littered uh, throughout with, with uh, Hindu chants, um, uh, chants to pagan gods that they believe form the universe, then no, it's not okay as a follower of Jesus. If you're being asked to make references to a life force or cosmic energy and, uh, and you greet each other with namaste, which is Sanskrit for I bow to the God within you, then no, it's not okay. If you are encouraged to repeat the sacred Hindu word om, which Hindus and Buddhists believe is the primordial sound that, that brought the universe into being and which lift up the three main Hindu gods in worship, then no, it's not okay. If you are using phrases like breathe in positive energy and breathe out negative energy, focus on the third eye, get in touch with the divinity within you, it's not okay. In fact, I'll put it bluntly, that kind of yoga means you are dipping your toe, dabbling with a false religion. Not just a false religion, but the occult. And that is true of other Eastern religious practices like, like feng shui. Tapping into some sort of spirit that is not the Holy Spirit. So if you are attempting to call upon or tap into a, a power that is not the power of, our, of the biblical God, there's only one other source, the evil one. So don't do it. So is yoga ever okay? It's not for me, but yes, I think it can be. A yoga class that has been stripped of its Hindu philosophy and reduced to stretches and to breathing. I mean, that's just that's good exercise. There's nothing demonic about putting your leg over your neck, right? <laughs> It may, yeah, yeah. It may hurt like hell. Doesn't mean it's from hell. Okay. Um, <laughs> there are even Christian yoga classes where you know everything from Hinduism is replaced with. 
Christian alternatives. Yoga that is led with a Christian worldview also handles meditation very differently, and it should. Uh, in Eastern religions, the goal of meditation is to what? Empty yourself. Empty your mind, which is, again, a very occult idea. Christian meditation is the exact opposite. It's about filling your mind with the things of God. So, so just like certain martial arts can be kind of stripped of its Eastern philosophy and become a great sport, a great workout, so can yoga. Um, there is so much, folks, that may attract us to philosophies, religions of the East. It's not about East versus West. I hope you know that. It's so much bigger than that. It's about whether there is a God. And that's not an East-West divide. That's, that's a human history divide. It's about what is ultimately wrong in your life that needs to be fixed and how it can be addressed. Christianity says there is a personal God that we can have a personal relationship with. Your problem, my problem, our problem is being estranged from that God, not being in a right relationship with him. Christianity doesn't call for mere enlightenment or even, or even think that enlightenment is the main problem. Christianity says that what your neighbor, what you, what your family really needs is God. A God who wants nothing more than to give himself to us. And thank God it is not based on karma. I'd be toast. Aren't you glad it's based on this amazing grace. How sweet the sound of grace, God. I'm a prodigal, and you ran down the road to greet me. I'm an older brother sometimes who, who is legalistic and, and, and wants things done his way. And you forgive me of that sort of self-righteousness too. Oh, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. I thank you for it, God. It's what separates us, I think, from every other belief system. This, this grace that has made my dark sin white as snow as I receive the righteousness of Jesus.